after we bought this tree, we were really careful about about pruning away or cutting back the fruit, thus allowing the, the tree to focus on the roots and, and growing healthy branches and becoming strong. And about a year and a half ago, the tree was all of a sudden mature enough that it could grow apples to the point of harvest. And that year, we had a, a reasonably good crop, which we immediately turned into fabulous apple jam which, by the way, mysteriously disappeared over the winter. I'd never figured out how it all happened, but it was gone. Much to my surprise, last spring, we did not receive a single bloom on that apple tree. We did not receive one single apple that could be grown into more apple jam. Now, interestingly enough, my cherry tree, uh, my raspberry, my gooseberry bushes, all produced an abundant crop, but not one apple. So last summer, my tree, it grew much taller than I would have expected, and it looked absolutely beautiful. However, if it's not growing fruit, there's probably something wrong with the tree. And so when I searched on Google, I discovered that sometimes the lawn fertilizer will affect the nitrogen levels in the soil and will cause a significant amount of leafy growth but it won't allow the tree to to produce fruit. It looks great on the outside. It was beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, my tree was sick. So last year, I had hired a lawn company to come in and do some weed control in my yard. I'd kind of done some research into what was wrong. And my grass had never looked better. It looked fantastic. And the apple tree was tall and green, but with no apples in my backyard, The tree was no different than any other tree in in the yard. I wanted my tree to produce an apple crop. And so this year I'm going to have to sit down and have a chat with the lawn company and ask what their fertilizer is doing to my tree and what needs to be done in order to ensure that I've got fruit next year. In John chapter 15, Jesus uses a very similar illustration when describing how the Father intends to shape and mold us into his image and into his likeness. Jesus tells us that the Father is a relentless gardener who will do whatever is necessary in order to produce fruit in my life. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the true grapevine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more fruit. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I've given you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Now, the day-to-day care of the branches is left in the hands of the Father, who will cut the fruitless branches, and the branches that produce fruit will be pruned. Why? So that they will produce even more fruit. In other words, God will remain involved with our lives and will continue to shape and work throughout my life. He's going to shape me into his image. You know, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. You know, through the whole of the Bible, the words fruit and good works are nearly 
always interchangeable. And therefore, when we see that, we realize that God's purpose and plan for my life is to produce good works in and through us. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, we read, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can go and do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that I have done absolutely nothing to earn my salvation. You know, there are not enough good works that you or I could ever do that would allow us to earn our way into heaven. However, Paul goes on to tell us that a natural outflowing of my salvation is that I will want to bring glory to God by the good works, not that I've done, but by the good works that God has done through me. God wants to brag about my life, and he wants to brag about your life. He wants to show off his great masterpiece that's going to be demonstrated through yours and mine's good work. You know, people will see the way that you and I interact with family, friends, co-workers, or, or others, and they will define the love of Jesus based on yours and my life and how we interact with others. And so my actions, whether they're good or bad, will tell the story of what God is doing. God wants people to look at me and see his creation. So they will want him in their own lives. He prunes away the healthy branches in order that he may do even more good works through, through yours and my life. See, good works are multiplied as people see how the love of God forgives those who hurt us, and how it blesses those who seem to be our enemies. God's fruit is going to look to the future in order to, to ensure that his love is passed from person to person, even when it's unintentional. You know, when I build into the lives of my children, I'm always having to ask myself the question, what, what character traits am I passing on? What am I handing to them that they will be able to take to the next generation? What kind of parents will they be like someday when they get to be parents to my grandchildren? I'm looking around the corner, and I'm asking myself if my actions are going to bear good fruit over the long term. And you know what? That's why even when our children are very young and very little, we need to be praying that they're going to choose good friends, that they're going to have the ability to make good life choices. And it's even why, even now my kids are still really little, why I pray that someday when they go to pick a spouse, they're going to pick one who will encourage them to reflect God's glory into the lives of my grandchildren. Why? So that they in turn might reflect the love of God into my great-grandchildren. It's not looking at the here and now, but it's understanding that my influence or the, the work of God that is produced through my life 
is passed from generation to generation through me to my children, to my grandchildren, to my great-grandchildren. Our influences are found in the subtleties of our behavior, our words, and our attitudes. Most of us don't understand this, but we as people are far more intuitive than what we, what we realize. At a subconscious level, we read very subtle cues in body language. We read very subtle cues in tone of voice that will either disprove or confirm what we're saying. Therefore, I want to understand this. As a local church, as we look at how we influence the community around us and how we, how we build into Terwilliger and, and, and the area, we need to understand that our greatest moment of influence is not on our Sunday morning service. Right? Our Fridays in the park, our spring carnival, winter delight, they all give us the opportunity to meet and get to know our neighbors. And you know what? That's good. It's important. But if we are going to have an influence in our community, it's not just going to be because of what happens at Winter Delight. Influence there begins, but our influence will happen when our neighbors see a genuine desire to be a part of their lives. And so our influence is at the grocery store when we're talking to a neighbor when we're sitting with other parents at a hockey arena cheering for our children's hockey team, or even while we're at work dealing with a client. My influence, or our influence as a church, is not centered in this building. It's as we go forth, and as we influence, and as we meet people and get to know them. My influence, your influence, isn't based on words. It's based on the strength of my character when people will see an authentic connection between my faith and the attitudes that are reflected throughout my whole life. If I live my life in a way that honors God, people should recognize that there's something different. God's character is unknowingly infused into the life of another person not because of anything that I've done. I can't do it. It's infused because God has injected himself into my life. It's not something I've done. In the book, The Secrets of the Vine, Bruce Wilkinson explains that a grape plant will tend to grow very quickly, and and because it grows so quickly, the vine can become so dense that the sun cannot reach the interior of the plant. And it's in the interior of the plant where the fruit will will ultimately form. See, the plant will always focus on growing more and more leafy branches, and it will produce fewer and fewer grapes as it gets thicker and more full. And from a distance, that vineyard is going to look beautiful. From a distance. But inside, it's sick. Like my apple tree. When the plant doesn't produce fruit, it will eventually become worthless to the vine grower. In the book of 1 Samuel, the people of Israel have come to the prophet Samuel to demand a king that will represent them to the nations. 
The people want someone who will be big and strong and will intimidate their enemies and will impress their friends. And God doesn't want to give them a king. He wants to be their king. But he listens and he agrees to give them the exact leader, the exact king that they've asked for. And the Bible tells us that Samuel called all the tribes of Israel together before the Lord and God revealed a man to them who stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Saul looked the part. On the outside, he had the image of the king. And when the people saw Saul, they all yelled, Long live the king! But what follows is an unmitigated disaster. It turns out that Saul is insecure and he lacks substance. He can't handle correction. He can't take advice. His ability to rule is nothing more than it's skin deep. And God recognizes that something needs to change. And he approaches Samuel. He then rejects the king and he begins looking for another. On the outside... Saul is like the vine that has become focused on the leafy growth but failed to produce fruit. He looked good. He was tall. He played the part. But as a king, he can't cut it. So when looking for a new king, Samuel makes the same mistake. He goes looking for someone who's going to be big and strong. And God stops Samuel quickly and he says, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When David is appointed king, he's just a boy. When he's appointed the king, he is the youngest of all his brothers. When he's appointed as king, nobody takes him seriously. Why? Because he's small. But you know what? God didn't choose him because of the way that he looked on the outside. The Bible tells us that David was far from perfect, and he did some really foolish things throughout his life. But there was one marker that characterized him, and that was he was connected to the very heart of God. If my life is going to be meaningful and produce fruit, my focus cannot be on the external, but on the attitudes that are behind my actions. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus is preaching what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, You have heard that our ancestors were told, You must not commit murder. All right, fair enough. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot you are in danger of being brought before the courts. Jesus is clarifying here in Matthew chapter 5 the command not to murder someone by saying that the sin isn't just. It's not just in the act of homicide, but is found in the attitude that sits below the surface. And when we harbor anger and when we curse someone, we have the same attitude as the person who just pulled the trigger. 
and are therefore considered to be, in God's eyes, just as guilty. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul tells that the Holy Spirit wants to grow very specific fruit and very specific good works. And Paul writes, But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are all attitudes, or they're an approach to life that will ultimately affect the way that I interact with others. See, if I have joy, I'm likely going to celebrate your victories. If I have patience, I will show you grace when you fall down. If I have self-control or am faithful, I won't try to win at your expense. God deals with the attitudes beneath the surface because they will profoundly impact my actions and behavior. And this attitude is slowly passed from person to person and generation to generation. A number of years ago, I had a neighbor who could actually grow trees on his apple tree. I obviously can't. But uh, my former neighbor understood that to grow apples, you need to ensure that the tree is able to focus its attention on growing fruit. And so he would cut off some of the branches and the leaves, and they were all very carefully picked. And at that time, he said to me, he took one of his branches that he had pruned and he dropped it in a bucket of water and he looked at me and he said, this one branch that I have cut off and dropped in the bucket of water will produce as much fruit as your entire tree will because you don't know how to, how to prune your tree. Apparently he was right, right? But at the time, the idea was absurd. Why? Because no branch, when it has been cut off from the tree, will ever have the ability to grow fruit. In the same way, unless my life is rooted in the vine, it won't produce fruit. Jesus tells us, yes, I am the vine. You are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Ten times in John chapter 15, Jesus uses the phrase, remain in me. Ten times In 27 verses, he uses these same words, remain in me. This is significant. He wants me to stop and pay very careful attention to these three words, remain in me. Why? He's trying to drive home a point. And because he's trying to drive it home, he's intentionally overstating it. And if we are going to understand the whole of John chapter 14, 15, and 16, the focal point is highlighted in these three words that are repeated over and over and over again. Remain in me. Unless I remain in the vine, unless I'm connected to the vine, my life will never have the ability to produce the fruit that God intended it to produce. 
Sure, I can do great things or good things by the world's standards. I might even be generous and successful. But God doesn't define success the same way that we do, does he? He doesn't focus on the actions. He doesn't look at the surface. He looks underneath it, and he looks at the motives and the attitudes behind our good works. God looks at the heart, and he wants people who are teachable, adaptable, and who will allow the Holy Spirit to grow the fruit because these good works only come as he moves and he grows love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control into my life. To remain in me finds a balance between connecting with God in our everyday lives and finding time to back away from the rigors of daily life in order to spend significant and uninterrupted time with God. There is a place where we have to stop and to refresh and to connect and to reconnect with the vine. But I also have to go through the daily rigors of life. I may be working, in in my line, I work with families. And so I might be working with a family and focused and listening to their story. And the person of God should have ingrained himself deeply enough in me that I can connect the truth with, with with their stories and maybe not even recognize the connection that's being made. Why? Because when we're connected to the vine, God's love and his character becomes intuitive and deeply ingrained. This morning, as we approach the communion table, I want to ask us, are we connected to the vine? Are are you connected to the vine? This morning, as we approach the communion table, I want to invite you to take that moment and step aside, um, not physically, but step aside that moment. Set it aside and say, God, I need to be connected to you. I remain connected in you. The communion table reminds us that it is Jesus' death and resurrection that our lives can be made new. It's here that I find grace, and it's here that I find the freedom to openly and honestly speak to the Father about my deeply rooted insecurities and my sin. This bread that we will eat reminds us that it is his body that feeds and nourishes us. And this cup that we will drink from reminds us that his blood runs deeply through our veins. We eat the bread. We drink the cup as a reminder that he lives in us in order to influence us and change us from the inside out. As I interact with with the community and the people within it, God will influence their lives as they see genuine and authentic characteristics that permeates into the darkest and deepest corners of my soul. As you partake in the elements, and as you ask Jesus to prepare you to be fruitful and do good works, allow him to speak past the surface issues of your life. Allow him in to look at where is really in need of some addressing. Show you the attitudes so that your life might be seen as God's masterpiece. As the communion servers and worship team uh, come forward, I'm I'm just going to invite them to come forward. Um, 
to continue to serve us, I'm just going to invite you to join with me in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for this wonderful gift that came at the cross. It was a a gift that allowed me to connect my life to yours. It was a gift that allowed me to become rooted into the very essence of who you are. And Father, this morning as we are here, I want to pray that we would just all have a desire to be deeply rooted to the vine, to be deeply rooted into who you are, to take your words, remain in me seriously. And allow you to speak into, into the dark corners of my life. Father God, I just pray that as we take these elements, that you would just challenge us, that you would continue to speak to us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, Corey, thank you. And Corey has also already um, reminded us of what these elements uh, remind us of that they are representative, they're symbols of his body and his blood that was shed for us. And as Corey challenged us this morning about needing to remain in him, it really raises a fundamental and important question. How are we in him in the first place? And so I want you to think about that. Am I in Christ? That is, have I put my hope and my trust in Christ for salvation, for eternal life, for all the things that he offers us. But we have to say yes to Jesus. We have to cross a line of faith that says, I once did not believe, but now I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died and he rose again and he lives today and now he lives in me and he is coming back. And the scriptures say that, we, that Jesus himself instituted this memorial meal, a way of remembering him and to give thanks to him. And so this is an opportunity for us as those who are in Christ to say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. And so if you are not in Christ this morning, it's okay to just let these elements pass by as you contemplate what that means, because it is a significant place, a crossroads in your life that you'll come to. And so if you just let those elements pass, that's fine. But as you take those elements, we're going to distribute first the bread and then the cup and hang on to both. And then uh, we'll, uh, we'll participate in those elements together. But as you're holding those elements, the worship team will lead us in some songs. You're able to sing. You can sit quietly and, and reflect. You can think about the songs. You can pray. But prepare your heart because it's an important time to just say, Jesus, where am I at today? And about remaining in him. So great thought for us today from Corey as, uh, as we distribute these elements.